Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome. If you have your Bibles, just go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Um, and as we turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask Him to, to stir our hearts and help us to see and learn, understand, and obey. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You. I thank You for today. I thank You that You have saved us through your son Jesus that died on the cross for our sins and by your blood you have paid for all of our sins once and for all and you have declared us righteous and you have accepted us not because what we have done but rather because of what your son has done Lord and this is available to all who believe and so, Lord, my prayer for us as a church is help us to believe this. Help us to constantly believe this. And those who do not believe, Lord, help them to believe. Help them to see their desperate need for you as they feel the weight of their sins, recognizing I need a Savior. I cannot save myself. I need Jesus. And may they turn to you and may you make them new through your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, come and speak to us. Open up our eyes, open up our ears, our hearts, our minds. Allow us to understand. And Lord, may it not just be head knowledge and a nice sermon, but may it minister to our hearts. May it feel like a heavy load and may it impact how we live our lives and how we think. May it lead into obedience as we look to you. And come minister to all of us. Lord, encourage our hearts. You know what we're going through. You know what we're facing. You know our struggles. You know our fears and our anxieties. So can you minister to us? Make yourself known to us, Lord, and help me to proclaim your word in boldness and humility as I point people to you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name when all God's people said, Amen. Well, we're continuing uh, through our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and so in our study last week, we started it. Uh, we we kind of learned that Paul wrote this letter, and he wrote this letter to the church of God in Corinth. And the reason why he wrote this letter to the church of God in Corinth, because he heard some reports from Chloe and her household of what's going on in the church. He, he heard, uh, he received a letter from the church. We had several questions for Paul. And so what Paul is doing is he is writing th to them and he's trying to persuade them. And the main message that he's trying to convey to them throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians is this. And this is our main theme, is that the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. In other words, the more the church matures in purity, where we're no longer influenced by our culture, but we're maturing as we're living the way that God has called us to be holy, that impacts our unity in the church. And so my hope for us in this series is that we would understand that the gospel requires us to mature in purity and unity, that as we look at all the issues in the text and all the issues in our life, that the gospel is decisive in speaking to how we should live in this culture and how, in a sense, it addresses every issue because it's decisive. Now, a little quick recap just so that we can get into this text. Like, if we have to describe the church of Corinth, holiness is not what comes to mind. 
Like one would even wonder if this is actually a church because what we saw the church of Corinth, they were sinfully divisive over church leaders. They tolerated incest. They were taking each other to court, uh, excusing sex with prostitutes, claiming it's even good not to pursue sex with one's spouse proudly uh, claiming special knowledge, clinging to their own personal rights in a way that does not build up the church, abusing fellow believers when it comes to the Lord's Supper, misevaluating and misusing their spiritual gifts, and then really at the end it's like denying that God is not going to resurrect the dead. And so you look at this list, and even if you're not a Christian, you're like thinking, what's wrong with those people? Even I know this is not right. And we're wondering, what kind of church is this? And yet what we find out, it is a church with a lot of problems. And yet look at how Paul, in the the first chapter we saw, how did Paul address these people? He calls these people the church of God in Corinth, set apart by God as holy. He calls them saints. And the reason why Paul is addressing them this way is because he wants to remind them of who they are in Christ. You are God's holy people. You have been set apart by God. You are saints. All of this is because of Christ. And if that's who you are in Christ, then start to act like that. Start to live like it. So as Paul's writing this letter, contemplating probably all the issues that he has to address... Paul in the beginning expresses like he is grateful. I thank God for you, not because of you, but because of God's grace. I thank God because this situation is not hopeless, because God's grace has enriched you in every way, and by God's grace, he is going to strengthen you, and he's going to present you blameless to the very end. And all of this is possible because God's faithful. And that's why Paul says, I thank God for you. That's why I am not hopeless in this situation. That's why I am grateful in this situation, because of God's sustaining grace. Now, as we get to verse 10, Paul is going to address the first of 10 issues. And he's actually going to spend most of his time, most of his words, addressing this very first issue. So if you're an outline kind of person, um, he's addressing the first issue, unity in the church, from uh, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through the end of chapter 4. So four chapters he is spending on addressing unity in the church. And so today we're going to just kind of lay a little bit of the groundwork, knowing, again, I'm not going to say everything there is when it comes to unity in the church because Paul has three more chapters to deal with it. So just a little the groundwork, but let's look at the text. And because we're only going to cover seven verses, I'm just going to read the entire passage and then we're going to walk through it uh, verse by verse. Verse 10 says this, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it's been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there's rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this, one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect or its power. All right, let's stop and let's, let's, let's unpack this here. Notice how, again, Paul addresses them. He addresses them as brothers. In other words, here what we see is we see Paul's affection for them, but we also see how is Paul addressing them. He's addressing them as brothers, members of God's household, being part of the family of God. And then he appeals to them, one appeal through three different expressions. Notice the three different expressions in this one appeal. He's, the first thing he says is that all of you agree in what you say. That's the positive sense. That there be no division among you. That's in a negative way. And that you be united with the same understanding, or some of your translations will say the same mind, and the same conviction or the same judgment depending on your translation. All three expressions is appealing for one thing, unity. Be united. But what's the basis for their unity? What does Paul say? I appeal to you, I urge you, in what? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he is saying, because you are family, because you are part of the household of God, because you have the same Lord Jesus Christ, and because you are united with Jesus, Jesus is in you, and you live in Jesus. What must you do? Pursue unity. And so here's the, if you're taking notes, here's the very first reason why the church should pursue unity. And it's really simple. There's nothing profound to it. It's because if you're taking notes, the gospel requires the church to be united. What requires us to be united? The gospel. Because we are in Christ. Because Christ is in us. Because of what he's done for us on the cross. Living a life we could not live and die a death we were all supposed to die. He substituted himself in the sinner's place and by his blood redeemed us reconciled us, bought us, adopted us into the family of God, that God would accept us because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel. That requires us to be united. One of the things, and we're going to talk more in application, is the question I want you guys to wrestle with and to understand. So I want you to write this down and, and fight and wrestle with this in your journal, whatever. What is the gospel and what's the implications and the effects of the gospel? Because that is key, but we're, we're going to revisit it again. And what we're really going to see is Paul, for the next four chapters, is really just unpacking the gospel. That, that, that's what he's going to do for the next four chapters. We even see in verse 17, at the end we saw in verse 17, he's talking about disunity, disunity, and then all of a sudden verse 17 he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to do what? To preach the gospel. How does he preach the gospel? Not with eloquence. Why? So that the, the cross of Christ. So now we're seeing what's main priority for Paul? The gospel. What's the central message of the gospel? Cross of Christ. 
So here's one of the questions we have to ask ourselves. When Paul says that we need to be united, and he uses these three expressions, what does he mean by that? When Paul says all of you must agree, when Paul says all of you must have the same understanding or the same mind, the same conviction or the same judgment, like what does he mean by that? Does he mean that we as Christians must agree on anything and everything? Well, like, like, like surely Paul knows that we're all different. He knows the church is different. The church that he wrote to that consisted of Jews and Gentiles, which means they have different backgrounds, different cultural preferences, different ethnicities, different languages, different parents, different likes, different dislikes. So what does he mean? He even addresses the differences in the church. In chapter 12, where he says we all have different gifts. We all have different roles. So what does Paul mean by appealing in his unity? I think we have to understand this, and again, this is not exhaustive. I'm just kind of touching on this. I don't think what Paul is not appealing for, he's appealing for unity, not uniformity. Uniformity is kind of this idea, and again, it's not an exhaustive definition, but it's like we all are in uniform. We look alike, act alike, think alike, speak alike. And yet the reality of it is, is like, He's not asking for us to be uniform because then why does he talk about in chapter 12 we all have different gifts? If we wanted uniformity, shouldn't we have all the same gifts and all be part the same body part? But what is he addressing? He's addressing unity. And what's unity? Unity means that we're all different. We think different. We look different. Our worldviews are different. We have different preferences, but yet there's one thing that despite all of our differences, this one thing that we can agree on, this one thing that we can understand, and this one thing is so strong, is so powerful, and so important that regardless of all of our differences, it does not matter because it's this very one thing that unites us. And because of this one thing that unites us, we do not allow our disagreements or our different understandings or our different convictions divide us. You see, division starts to creep in because we have forgotten this one thing. We've been distracted and we've forsaken this one thing and we've allowed our differences to divide. And what Paul is appealing for in his unity, the appeal to the church to be unified, what is that one thing that unifies us? The gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, here's the same truth in reverse form. If the gospel requires the church to be united, then what is what unites the church? The gospel is what unites the church. The gospel is the one thing that is so strong that even in our differences, even in our disagreements, we can put it aside and we can be united. So in other words, what Paul is saying is when he is saying agree with one another, have the same mind, the same understanding, the same judgment, the same conviction, what is he talking about we should be united on? What should we agree on? What, when, when should we have the same conviction and the same judgment and the same understanding? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us. 
Now Paul is going to show the reason why he's appealing for unity. We now see the issue in this church. Look, look at verse 11. It says, For it's been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Again, notice how he calls them brothers. He's still addressing them as the family of God, and now he reveals his source of information. He says, look, I'm hearing reports from Chloe and her household, her people. They're telling me that you guys are divided over church leaders. Who's Chloe? We don't know. Paul doesn't tell us, and that's not important. What is important? The fact that they are divided and what they're divided on. And instead of unity, there's rivalry. In other words, in some of your translations, it's quarreling. It's strife. Now, I don't want us just to skip over and say, well, you know, a little, little rivalry, a little quarreling, a little strife. I, I want to show you the severity of this rivalry and this quarreling. I actually like the word quarreling more. Here's what we have to understand. The word quarreling, the word rivalry, the word strife, that's not just arguing. But what it is, it's con- taking a contentious position that's causing dissension or factions. It's causing division. And it's so important for us to note that this rivalry or this quarreling or the strife that's causing dissension or faction, we have to understand the source of it. Where does it come from? It's not a work of the Spirit. It is a work of the flesh. Uh, you can write down the reference. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. Uh, I'm going to read it to you, and I want to show you three things that we learn from this. No, notice how Paul deals uh, the, the kind of sin he mentions, and then he's going to mention dissension and faction. He, he says in Galatians 5, 19, he says, Now the work of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions. And we're like, yep, 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 that's really bad. But then he says, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, anger, selfish ambitions, carousing, or anything similar. So in other words, what does Paul say? What's the big deal about division? What's the big deal about dissension and faction? It's, it comes from where? The spirit or the flesh? Comes from the flesh. And this sin is so severe that it's on the same list of sorcery, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry. So it's not like, oh, division is right here. These are right there. It's, no, it's all up here. And then Paul gives a warning. He says this in verse 21. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Dissension in factions is so severe that it's listed with the worst of sin. And the warning is, you continue to practice it, there is a warning. Such people do not belong in the kingdom of God. What Paul is dealing with in the church of Corinth 
It's not a tiny issue. It is a big issue. What were they quarreling about? Let's look, look at our text. What are they quarreling about? They were arguing about church members claiming certain teachers over another. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, which is Peter. All of those were leaders that ministered into the church in one way or another. And then you have the fourth group saying, I don't follow these guys. I follow Jesus Christ. And we're like, yeah, that's the ones we should belong to. But you know what they mean by that when they say they follow Jesus Christ? In their self-righteous way, they are saying, we follow Jesus who gave us this special knowledge that you don't have, which makes us more important than anybody else in this church. And really, in this quarreling, in their strife, these Corinthians were copying influence by the worldly culture, dividing over teachers. You see, secular Corinthians followed worldly teachers, and by associating themselves to a teacher, they were associating themselves to the teaching that caused them to be elevated over the rest. So if you follow a popular speaker and you become that disciple, that means now you're more important than the other person. So some were looking at Paul and say, yeah, I'm following Paul because he's the real OG. He's the one who first shared the gospel with us. So he's much more important. And then you had some of the guys saying, no, Apollos, he's more elegant, more intellectual than Paul. So that means his teaching is better than Paul. And then you have some saying, no, I think Peter is better because he's closely tied to the church in Jerusalem because he's with the Jews. So that means my faith is way more closely tied to the church in Jerusalem. That's way more original than Paul. And then the Christ people, they were like, yeah, we got secret knowledge which you don't have. And this quarreling caused dissension and faction. And what we have to understand, it wasn't like they preferred one teacher after, over another. Let's just be honest. Do we prefer certain teachings and certain styles over, over others? Yeah, I do too. There's some guys I, I really enjoy. There's some guys, eh, I don't mind them. But it had nothing to do with style. It had everything to do with elevating the teacher over the teaching, the messenger over the message. And what got lost? The message, the teaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They got distracted, and the gospel no longer became central. Division started, started breathing. And that's what's ha- that was happening in, in the church of Corinth, and, and this can even happen to us today. We get so caught up by methods and styles and models and theological systems or doctrines that we associate ourselves with. And those things aren't bad things, but when we start to elevate them over the gospel and the gospel now starts getting lost and the gospel is no longer central, what happens? We start drawing line in the sands and saying, this is my camp, this is your camp. Causes division, factions. Paul says, that is from the flesh. That is an awful sin, and I'm warning you, you continue in that. You will not be part of the kingdom. That is not from the Spirit. 
So he's pleading with them in a sense, repentance. Look at as he continues to deal with this issue, as he gives them three rhetorical questions. He says in verse 12, um, verse 13, sorry, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? What's the answer? No, no. He says, I thank God in verse 14 that I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. And then verse 16, he says, I did in fact baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized any one of you. Now, now this is very weird because it's not like Paul is speaking these things and then as he's speaking these things, oh yeah, by the way, this is coming to mind. No, what's happening? He's writing this down. So in my opinion, if I had to write this and say, I didn't baptize any of you except this person, and then there another sentence is, oh yeah, later I remember that, what would I do? I would kind of erase that and say, hey, I didn't baptize many of you. I've only baptized so, 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 and so. The rest I can't remember. But why is he not erasing it? What is he trying to say by, say by all of these things? Why does he say he says none and then he recalls exception? Here's his point. Because he's trying to show them that the baptizer, including himself, is is not very important. What is important? Look, 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 Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effects. So in other words, what was Paul's mission? His mission was the proclamation of the gospel and also baptizing. Well, what's the Great Commission? Go, make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to obey everything. What did Paul do? He, he baptized. But why is he saying Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel? What he's trying to do is he's trying to communicate and put baptism in its rightful place. Because how do people become Christians? Through baptism? No. They become Christians, when the Word of God, the Gospel is clearly proclaimed, and the Spirit of God opens up the eyes of the sinner, and the illuminating truth revealing to them their need for a Savior, and the sinner repents from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ. And all of this is because of the Gospel being proclaimed. And then baptism follows in obedience. So what's Paul's main concern here? Preaching the gospel. And notice how he says, how does he preach the gospel? Look at his method. Look at his main purpose. I preach the gospel not with eloquent wisdom. Why? So that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effects. In other words, he's not using eloquent wisdom or worldly rhetorics. Why? Because he wants to make sure that nothing is taken away from the cross of Christ. Nothing distracts from the gospel so it can be clearly proclaimed. And next week we're going to talk more about it because I think verse 18 follows verse 17. But we have to stop right here. Here's Paul's desire. Unifying the church. What's his number one responsibility? proclaiming the gospel, the cross of Christ. Why? Because that's the cross of Christ salvation can be found, where our sins have been paid for, where God's wrath has been satisfied, where we've been redeemed, reconciled, 
and accepted by God, adopted into his family. It's the cross of Christ that unites us. It strengthens us in our unity. And Paul wants to make sure that that is central, that all the methods and all the styles, let's put it to the side. Let's make sure it does not distract. So, so, so here's the main point, and then we're going to talk about application here. The main point is the gospel requires the church to be united. It's the gospel what unites us. If that is true, which I think it is, what the text clearly proclaims, what does that mean for us? How do we live our lives? What should we be doing in ensuring that there is unity? Three things, very easy. First one, if you're taking notes, what does that mean for us? What is that we need to do? First, we need to be grounded in the gospel. We need to be grounded in the gospel. In other words, what I mean by that is, is we need to understand what the gospel is and what it's not. We need to understand its implications and its effects and clearly be able to articulate the gospel. Not everything is the gospel. We have to understand what it is. That, that, that's why, like, one of the things, we do it in the training program with our leaders. Their exercise for 10 weeks is to try to clearly define what the gospel is and its implications in their life. Now, I want to encourage you, like, write that question down. What is the gospel, and what is its implications for me in my life? And then try to write it down, articulate it, which means maybe you'll have several drafts, but I want you to think through it. I want you to look at the scriptures in it so that you can be grounded in it, so that you can understand it. Because the more we're grounded in the gospel, the more we have an understanding of the gospel and the implications and the effects of it in our lives. What's is that going to cause for us to be? More united. So then we can look at some of our theological differences and say, that's cute, it just doesn't matter. Because what matters? The gospel of Jesus Christ. If the strength of our unity is dependent on the source of our unity, what should our efforts be in? Be grounded in the source of it. And what's the source of our unity? The gospel. We need to be grounded in it. We need to understand it. We need to be able to explain it. We need to be able to apply it. And folks, that's not going to happen this week. It's going to take years, decades. There's authors I'm reading who've been faithfully preaching the gospel for 40-some years, and they're saying we're barely scratching the surface of the vastness and the implications of the gospel in our lives and how beautiful the gospel is and how enriching this incredible grace that God has given us through his son Jesus. So it is something that we need to constantly be grounded in. The, the second thing, not only do we need to be grounded in the gospel, but we need to fight to believe the gospel. We need to fight to believe the gospel. You, what's true for us is what's true for God's people throughout the Bible. We are a people that are quick to forget. Let, like, let's go back to Exodus after God saves these knuckleheads and brings them out of Egypt, what do they say? Oh, God can't provide for us. We want to go back to Egypt. And you're reading and you're thinking, are you kidding me? What's wrong with you? God just saved you from it. And yet, what do we do? The exact same thing. We are quick to forget. When you read the New Testament, when you read the epistles, 
every issue that Paul or Peter or James or Jude or John addresses is a gospel issue because somehow, some way, they have forgotten the truths of the gospel. And then he, they are saying, no, guys, time out. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember what Christ has done for you. Uh, this morning I was reading Galatians in my time. I've been reading Galatians. And you know what their issue is? All of a sudden they want to get circumcised because they think Jesus is not enough and circumcision will seal the deal for them. And Paul is like, are you kidding me? Why would you want to get circumcised and go back under the law again? No one can fulfill it. Isn't that what Christ did for you? He came and fulfilled the law of God for you, and He bore the curse of the law for you. Is what Christ has done for you not sufficient? Is not enough? And all the epistles are somehow, again, reminding us, reminding the church, remember who Christ is. Remember what Christ has done for you. We are a people that are quick to forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we, we gather in our services. We want to make sure the gospel is clearly proclaimed from beginning to end. Time of confession and assurance, what is that basically? Proclamation of the gospel. We're reminded God is holy. We are not. We need a Savior and have a Savior. And then we preach the word. And what am I pointing to you? God is holy. We are not. We need a Savior. We come to the table. And what are we reminded of? God is holy, we are not. Look at the Savior we have. Why? Because we are quick to forget. We need to every day fight to believe, which leads me to my last application, very easy as well. If we're quick to, uh, to, to forget the gospel, what do, we what do we need to do daily? We need to daily preach the gospel. We should not just be preaching the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. We should because we've been commanded to do it. But we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another daily. So for the rest of our time, I know for some of you this might be a foreign concept. So I'm going to try to illustrate to you and show you the glorious gospels. Um, give you an example. How many of you, you don't have to be honest. It's okay to lie in church. The Lord knows your heart. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's always weird when you ask for participation. Like, like, how many of you, you're tired and weary in life? You're like, I'm just, I'm done. I can barely get out of bed. And curse on this daylight savings time, okay? <laughs> you're tired, you're weary. You're like, I'm just done. I can't do this anymore. Uh, how, how many of you, you're, you're fearful of all the uncertainties and conflict around you? You're like, I'm just petrified. I don't know what's going to happen. Fast from internet was one of the worst things because I quickly caught up this morning because Sunday is the off day. Oh my goodness. How many of you, you're sad, you're angry, you feel hurt, betrayed, abandoned, rejected? Okay. How do we preach the gospel to ourselves in light of this? Let's talk about the tired and weariness. When we're tired and when we're weary, uh, we're reminded that we have limitations. We have limitations. And in our weariness, in our tiredness, the lie that we have a tendency to believe, maybe not for you, maybe just for me, I cannot afford to rest. 
I don't have the time to rest. There are people dependent on me. And if I am resting, things are going to fall apart. So what do I do? I say, let's buckle down and let's work hard because I can rest soon. And what happens when that soon happens? You're not resting. Why? Because you're constantly believing the lie. I cannot afford to rest. I need to do more. And if I not do not more, things are going to fall apart. And yet, how does the gospel confront that? The gospel says that I can rest because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, who paid for my sins once and for all, that I can rest in his finished work because what Christ has done for me is sufficient. And who's the ultimate Savior? Me? Christ. Christ is. And so one of the things, every night with the sleepless nights I have, you know what I tell myself every single night? Because what happens when you can't sleep in your mind, you're running all the scenarios, all the things that you need to do, all the fires you need to put out, all the conflicts and all the relationships that you have to reconcile, and you feel like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and you need to do all the things to prepare. You know what I tell myself every night? Right now, I need sleep because I have limitations, and I can sleep, and I can go to rest because the work of Christ is finished. His work on my behalf is sufficient. I don't have to prove anything to anyone anymore, so go to bed and sleep and trust in Him. It's hard. I wish I can say, and then when I say that, all of a sudden, I go to bed and have the best night's sleep. No, but I keep repeating it and keep repeating it, keep repeating it until I go to rest. Or sharing with friends, like, Sabbath is one of the hardest things for me to do. I feel guilty when I rest. And you know what that is? I'm not trusting in Christ's sufficiency for me because I need to perform I need to do because my value is wrapped up in it. And yet, no, Christ has achieved enough for me. Let's talk about um, fearful. When we are fearful, why, why we're fearful? Because of unknowns, because of conflict. And part of our, our fearfulness of it is because one of the truths we're reminded of is we have no control. We have no control in life. So what do we do in our fear? We believe that we need to now gain control and take control of the situation and step in and provide and save, and we act out of fear. And yet, in our fear, one of the things that we need to acknowledge in our fear is, I'm I'm not in control. I don't have the ability to control this situation. I can barely control myself. How can I control others? Who's in control? God is in control. He has come to deliver me and rescue me from the enslave, from myself, the enslavement of sin, the deceitfulness of the devil, and the overwhelming grip of death. Because Christ has redeemed me, and he has bought me with his precious blood. He has defeated Satan's sin and death. By his burial and resurrection, the wrath of God is satisfied. And he's bought me and he's made me his own.
and he is coming back to make all things new. And his promises are true because he is faithful. If that is true about Jesus, that he has delivered me, that he has made me his own, that he's coming back to make all things new and fix every single problem I will ever face, will have ever faced in life, I don't have to be fearful. I can trust him. I can look to him. Don't mean I don't fight with the emotions, fear. Like, no, I just can't stand the saying, let go, let God. Yeah, easier said than done. Why can I let go and let God? Because of who he is and what he's done for me. And so in my fighting of fear, I can say I am fearful right now because I feel like I've lost control of myself in the situation. I am fearful right now because wondering where in the world the direction of my child is going. Why? Because I feel like I've lost control of my child and the reality of it is you've never had control of them. But who is in control of everything? Who delivered you? Who set you free? Who defeated the enemies that no one could defeat? Jesus. And who promised to make all things new? Jesus. I can rest in him. Last one. When I'm sad, when I'm angry, and I'm sad and angry because I feel hurt. Somebody has hurt me. I feel abandoned. I feel rejected. I feel betrayed. And part of when I feel abandoned, rejected, betrayed, the lie that I have a tendency to believe is no one loves me. Because if people love me, they won't treat me like that. If people love me, they won't say awful things about me. If people love me, they won't turn their backs on me. And yet what happened? Those things. And so I believe that no one loves me. So what do I do? If you're a type A person like me, you now try to earn the affections of people and you do whatever it takes for people to love you and approve of you even if now you are no longer yourself. Or if you're the other type, you're like, I don't want to say a bad word. (laughs) Sorry. Shows you how wicked my mind is. Like, I'm done with you. I'm just going to act out and give you reasons why you should not love me. You're not going to love me. Let me give you reasons why you should not love me. And yet, what does what, what the gospel tells me? The gospel tells me that God loves you. How do you know that God loves you? Because he sent his son to die for you. To buy you back out of slavery. So you can be adopted into his family. And God accepts you, not because of you. God accepts you because of what Christ has done for you. Think how glorious that truth is. If God accepted you because of you, then God's acceptance of you is based on your performance. So as long as you have good days, God will accept of you. But the reality of it is we have more bad days than good days. But if it's true, the gospel truth is that God accepts me because of Christ's performance on my behalf, that means his acceptance of me is tied to Jesus' performance, which is perfect and is done and is complete. That means it is an unconditional acceptance of me. So even when people abandon me, even when people reject me, even when people speak ill things of me, God loves me. 
And he showed me how much he loves me by giving his son for me. And that even in my sin, even maybe I gave people reasons to to be mean to me. God doesn't change the way he looks at me because he sees his son in me. All three of those preaching the gospel, what does it require of you? Not just to know these things and proclaim these things, but to what? Do what? Believe these things. Like your job is to, be, to, to believe these things, to cling to these things. And so the question I have for you is, do you believe these things? Do you believe what Christ has done for you on the cross is enough? That he paid for your sins once and for all. That you can rest because what Jesus has done is enough. It's finished. That you can relinquish control and you don't have to act out in fear because God is in control of everything. Because King Jesus has has been raised from the dead and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he is coming back to make all things new. And that no matter what happens in your life, the highs, the lows, the disappointments, God loves you and accepts you, not because of you, but because of his son, Jesus. This is an invitation, not just for non-believers, but for believers as well. This is something we have to daily proclaim and daily fight to believe these things. And here's when division creeps in. We fail to believe these things. We forget these things. And now what unites us no longer unites us, and we allow all these secondary issues to now divide us. And we start acting out of fear, out of anger and sadness and weariness. And I'm not saying those emotions aren't real. No, they're real emotions. But those real emotions are rooted in lies. And we need to cling, forget these lies, run away from these lies, and cling to the truths of the gospel in these emotions trusting that Jesus will minister to us in them. Be grounded in the gospel. Fight to believe the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, regardless of your emotions. Now, maybe for some of you, all of this information is new. You're like, well, I never knew all the gospel implications. Great. Our job is to disciple you. Come to church, join a life group, sign up for gospel projects, sign up for core classes. Our job is to equip you with these gospel truths so that you are not tossed to and throw by every winds of doctrine. If some of these things are all new, you're like, I don't even know if I know the gospel, if I need the gospel. Well, then come, let's walk next side by you. Let's show you the glorious riches of the gospel where Jesus says it's like a man who walks across a field and he stumbles over this treasure. And this treasure is so profound, without even thinking, he runs, he sells everything so that he could have it. So invite us in to walk with you, to show you the beautiful treasures of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you are the one that unites us and that you are so powerful in uniting us that we can be people with different ethnicities, different gender, 
different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different likes, different dislikes, different preferences, that we can come together as one. And it's not because we're good at it. It's because you're that powerful and that strong. And Lord, a picture of heaven is all the tribes and all the nations coming together and pledging their allegiance to you and acting as brothers and sisters, the household, the family of God. May we see a picture of it in our church. May we see a picture of it in all of our churches, that regardless of our differences, we are united in you, Lord Jesus. And the things that have distracted us and the things that is no longer central, Lord, can you help us to make it central? Can you help us to be grounded in the gospel? Help us to fight to believe the gospel? Lord, and help us to graciously preach the gospel to one another and to ourselves. Lord, and can these gospel truths we learn, can it minister to our hearts in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our tiredness, in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our anger, our pain? Can you help us to identify some of the lies we've believed and cling to the truths of the gospel?